0: This is Indian Noir, India's most critically acclaimed horror and crime storytelling podcast. Follow Indian Noir on at Indian Noir on Instagram. You're listening to His Night Begins, Season 3, Part 1. remembers the kiss then he remembers the storm of bullets the shattering of glass sharp pain blossoming on a hundred spots on his flesh the taste of blood in his mouth he remembers one hail of thunderous gunfire being silenced by another he remembers the sky a plane in the higher atmosphere bearing people Going somewhere special. Virat was going to take Nirmala on holiday. What happened to her? He can't see her. He can't sense her body. He doesn't see a blinding flash of light or the faces of his victims. No tunnels. No angels. Definitely no angels. Nirmala... Nirmala. Why can he remember all these sensory details but not know what happened to her? Why? 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 He wakes up. He hears horses in the distance. <laughs> There is an old man, dressed like he's about to go on a jungle safari, sitting next to him. He looks like a less handsome version of a tanned Santa Claus. His nose is bent. Scars made by knives crisscrosses his arms. Virat notices his arms because the man's hands bear bloody bandages. His wounds are being cleaned. You keep saying why, the old man says. What? Birat tries to say, but it comes out as a croak. He coughs uncontrollably. The man gives him some water. How many months? Birat asks. He was not tempted to ask how many days because he knows instinctively that it would take months to recover from the trauma inflicted on him by scores of bullets that had carved into his flesh. He knows he has been shot multiple times. Five months, the man says, without size. He has clearly woken up many times before, but the cocktail of healing drugs and... What's that smell? Marijuana. It was an excellent healing agent. I am Suketu Prashad. I was a field medic and a commando with the 50th Paratrooper Regiment, the man said. The name rang a bell. The surgical strike team from the early 90s. And I owe it to Chettyar to ensure that you are able to walk out of here without leaking from the bullet wounds on your torso. I mean, it's a real testament to your genetics that you've healed so fast. Most people would have been dead in a week, the man says. Virad notices the bags of antibiotics and saline solution next to the bed. The clear liquid dripping into tubes and sneaking down into his veins. What happened to Nirmala? Virat asks. It is time you jumped onto that. The man says, avoiding the question and pointing to a wheelchair. Suketu struggles to load all six feet five inches of Virat onto the wheelchair. Pain arcs through the channels that run up and down Virat's body. His bones feel unstable. His flesh feels like they have been held together with superglue. Raw and throbbing agony makes him bite his lips as he sinks into the chair. There is a desire to move, to progress, to transform. But what he hears next extinguishes that flame in his soul. Suketu rolls Virat out onto the veranda of the farmhouse, made from red bricks and timber trimmings. A farm in the outskirts of Sholapur. Sugar cane on one side, as far as I can see, like a green army waving sights. On the left is a shed with an old jeep and tools hanging on metal racks nailed to wooden walls. There is a water pump outside, dripping constantly. To the right is a corral with three beautiful horses. The man hands Virat a cup of coffee. Drink it, he says. It is from Kurg. I ordered the beans and grind it myself. It's good. Nirmala, Virat says, accepting the cup. She passed. She took most of the bullets to her head. The man says. That's why Virat didn't remember her. There was nothing left of her. Chettyar's men arrived in time and took out the assassination squad working for people he called the Syndicate. He saved you, but your girlfriend was long gone. I am sorry to break this news to you. Virat watches the horses standing still in the late afternoon breeze. They don't make a noise. He drops the coffee mug on the floor. It shatters like his psyche. The thought of revenge that would have once propelled him now screams feebly under his bandaged flesh. He realizes that he had loved Nirmala, that she was the only person other than Anya that he had ever truly loved that he never told her he loved her. Or did he? He couldn't remember. Your ex-wife is under police protection, and your son, well, no one knows, Suketu says. The information registers somewhere, but a numbness is creeping into his inner sanctum. Virat wants to care. He wants to go and protect what is left of his family. But the sun has set on his fury. The darkness creeps into his eyes. He passes out. He keeps staring at those damn horses. Hmm... Yep, Sukethu says into the phone. Chetiar is on the line inquiring about his friend Virat. It has been a month since Suketu broke the news about Nirmala to Virat. His physical strength has returned, but he refuses to walk, just sits there. His will is broken, I think. Hmm, I, I will keep at it. The man kept saying. Suketu puts the phone down and approaches Virat from behind. He is not happy about the fact that he has failed to cut through this man's grief. A man who is now a shadow of his former self. A man who now wears a crown of wavy hair and a bushy beard sprinkled with grey highlights. Previously, vacant stares from Virat had greeted Suketu's attempts to inspire him. But Suketu was going to keep trying. He was a paratrooper; they were not made of melted butter. He didn't bother asking Virat if he wanted dinner. Like every other night, he rolled the wheelchair to the dining table and rested him in front of a plate of chapati and alu chole. You must be getting tired of the same meal every night, but it's good. The sub is from my farm. Virat ate slowly, and he stared at the swirls made by varnish on the wooden dining table. You know how I got these scars on my hands. It was a cross-border infiltration mission. My parachute malfunctioned, and I crashed into a barn in the heart of the enemy territory. They captured and then tortured me for two months straight to get answers. But the men of 50th are a tough breed. <laughs> we don't crack easy, oh, or that's what they say, anyways. Because even though I didn't give them any intel, I was ready to die. I wasn't looking for ways to escape. I felt like I had done my duty. All I got for it was pain, and now that I had refused to rat, my commitment to my regiment and my country was done. Play the bugle. Pin the medal on that Indian flag and drape it on my coffin. (laughs) Uh, uh, Then, one fine day, this angel turns up. She's in her twenties, a beautiful woman. She unties me, says, our army is needed. People like me are needed. Our army, our nation is their only salvation. Suketu takes a sip of water and watches Virat. She says to me, your work is not done, soldier. I looked at myself, cuts and bruises everywhere, missing teeth and nails torn off with pliers. I must have looked like hell. I did not look like a soldier, more like a corpse. But that is what she said to me. Your work is not done, soldier. Something burned in me again. The thought that I am needed... My skills are needed to perform one last deed of valour for this girl and her people. My country needs me. Virat stops eating. Suketu so can see that he's paying attention now, even though he doesn't meet the eye of the teller of the tale. I crawled out of there, made my way into the forest. Well, the rest you can guess because... Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you the story. Virat sighs. His eyes have lost their vacant stare. Now there is emotion, sadness. Virat, what I want to tell you is this You are not done. Your work is not done, soldier. I know you have gained enough strength to get off that chair and walk out of here. So walk out of here. Embrace your duty, my son. The phone rings. Suketu speaks into the phone for a bit and then hands it over to Virat. Virat places the phone on his ears. Viru, I am so sorry about Nirmala. I'm sorry I haven't spoken to you in a while. I just didn't have the heart to hear your broken voice. Chetir says, You have nothing to apologize for. You have my heartfelt Thanks. Virat utters his first words in months. I have news, Chetir says. The syndicate has reached out to me. They want to meet with you. You can't refuse the meeting because if you do... They will kill your wife. There is a pause and he hears Chetiar swallowing. They will kill me as well for saving your life if you don't take the meeting. Organizing this parlay is my get out of jail card. Chetiar says. I hear you. Say yes. I will be ready," Virat says. That night Suketu hears the electric trimmer being used in the bathroom. He smiles as he drifts off into sleep. Virat is clean-shaven, looking like a soldier waiting for orders to butcher enemy combatants. Virat has lost his muscle tone, but he is still a formidable man. I need some weights and a gun, Virat says. Getting back into the swing of things, hey? Suketu says with a smile. The garage has a temporary gym. Some barbells, dumbbells, Ah, I I think a pull-up bar. Back from the days when I used to exercise. uh, The gun, well, I will have to dig it up from a secret spot. It is a pea shooter, a Glock. I'm sure you wouldn't use it in your line of work, but to get a bit of aiming practice in, it'll be just fine, I think. Suketu says without nods, A month passes without any news from Chetiyar. A month of functional training, running, squats, shoulder presses, push-ups, deadlifts, back-breaking work around the farm. You can come back and train here any time you want. (laughs) Suketu says jokingly, gazing at the improvements Virat made to the farm. New fencing, new irrigation channels, three new sheds, and a larger corral for the horses. The killer has a soft spot for horses. When you are done with your duty, you can come back here, son and take over the farm. I will be done by then, buried underneath that mango tree over there, Suketu says. Virat is not entirely averse to the idea. To avoid spooking the horses, the hitman hikes up a nearby hill and practices his firing on old beer cans from Suketu's drinking days. His shot is a bit off, during the first few weeks. Nirmala's memories flood into his veins, throwing him off his aim. But then, the killer instinct returns. The mind becomes the arm, becomes the gun. The eye becomes the arm, becomes the blade. Man and weapon, united in purpose to become a lethal weapon. He is ready, and he is impatient. His body still hurts, but he's ready to do his duty, whatever that might be. One Sunday afternoon, Virat jogs down the hill with a 30 kilo backpack and enters the farmhouse to find Suketu nodding and umming and eyeing into the fawn. Virat unloads the pack and sinks into the couch. His hands pressed together in anticipation his eyes reading Suketu's lips. Suketu gets off the phone and says, It's time. You took your sweet time, didn't you? Chetir says jokingly as Virat re-enters the car after visiting his sick uncle Arjun at his home. I like to seek his blessings, before I embark on a big gig. He taught me the trade. He is my guru. He is like a father to me, Virat says. How is he? Chatir asks, as he puts the car into gear. He is dying, Virat says. They drive on in the direction of Ravina's home. The syndicate had organised for the meeting to take place in the presence of his ex-wife. They will have conditions, Chetir says. You know this. No such thing as a free pass with this lot. I expect as much, Virat says. Virat is back to his full strength. His black t-shirt struggles to conceal his ripped physique. Chetiar is both scared and delighted to see the intensity in his friend's eyes. Shuketu looked after you well, Chetiar says, after throwing a glance at Virat's killer body. Virat nods. He purses his lips as he remembers farewelling his carer. The Old Man with a Thousand Army Tales I was serious. You come back and take over this farm from me when you are done. The horses would love that too, Suketu had said, as he placed his hand on Virat's head to give him his blessings. Virat could still feel the weight of the old man's calloused hands on his forehead. at their destination. Chetiar parks his car in front of the two-story house and looks around. I don't see any cars out front. Do you think this is a trap? Chetiar questions. Most assuredly. Virat says, turning to Chetiar. Chetiar swallows in fear. I want to thank you for everything you have done for me. But I must ask you for one last favor, Virat says. It has been my pleasure, Chetier says. My friend. Virat nods. I need a gun. Chetier hesitates for a second before opening the glove compartment. He pulls out a Beretta PX-4 Storm. Virat smiles. He loves the fast precision triggers and the sturdy grip on these babies. Chetir hands it over to Virat with a look of concern. I want you to leave now. Whatever happens here, whatever is going to happen to me, I don't want you to be a part of it. Not anymore. The syndicate has let you live for now. But they can change their mind. I don't want to be responsible for your death, Virat says. I, Chetiyar says, no arguments, Virat responds. Virat steps out of the car and looks at his former home, which now slumbers in the afternoon heat like a den of painful memories. Yes boss, he is here. Just stepped out of the car. The man in the front passenger seat says into the phone. The driver of the car that is observing Chetiar's vehicle rubs his hand gleefully and says, I can't wait for him to discover the surprise we have organised inside the house. Shut the fuck up Ramu. The boss is on the phone. The man holding the phone says with a look of displeasure, Ah, boss, everything was laid out according to your wish. The man says before switching off the phone. He slaps the driver hard across the face. You fucking idiot. Don't pull that shit on me again. Sorry, Billu. I was just expressing the inner joy in my soul. Billu let out a long sigh. Ramu, do you know why you are in the employ of the syndicate? because you are as good at using a knife to cut up a human body as I am. That is your only worth as a human being. No one, especially the boss, cares about your inner joy. Billu glances at the rear car seat and notices a scrunched up copy of a book titled Living Your Best Life, written by an IIM graduate who sold his Ferrari gave up shares in his million-dollar unicorn startup, and was now teaching yoga in the banks of the river Ganga. Now I know why you talk the way you do. Stop reading this shit during your breaks. You will get dysentery in your brain, Billu said. The two men watched Virat enter the home. Billu smiled. It was his way of expressing the joy in his soul. Virat pulls out the Beretta and readies it in his grip before placing his hand on the door. It wasn't locked. He pushes it open. A deadly silence greets him. He looks to the left. Perched on top of the living room coffee table was an oversized framed photograph of Anya smiling beautifully. It was decorated with flowers and balloons. A giant banner above it read, Welcome home, Daddy. Virat bit down a wave of sorrow as he scanned the rest of the room. He looked ahead. A trail of clothes and makeup items were strewn on the carpeted passageway that led to the dining room. He moved forward, swiveling left left then right and back again, ready to pump bullets into anyone who thought it was a wise move to ambush one of the greatest contract killers in India. The items on the floor belonged to Nirmala. Her undergarments, the expensive lipstick he had purchased for her during their London holiday. Her birthday gift, a necklace of blue corals with gold trimmings was draped on the lighting fixture on the wall. Virat bit his lips and drew blood. He was a man used to butchering human bodies, both live and dead. Yet he could tell he was not prepared for what was coming next. He knew it in the depths of his soul. The smell wafting in from the dining room was disgusting. The dining table was set up for a dinner for six. Steaming hot curries in copper vessels, naan in straw baskets, and a big glass bowl of rice and ratha graced the surface of the table. Seated at the head of the table was the ruined, embalmed body of Nirmala. There was very little left of her head. Her neck and chest were ravished by stitches and black bullet holes like craters on the surface of the moon. The syndicate had clearly procured her body from the morgue. The Davina's decapitated head was set atop a large pineapple that served as the decorative centerpiece of the dining table. Her eyes were rolled up, exposing its whites. Her blue mouth bore cuts and bruises. Her ears were clipped away, indicating extreme torture. The flesh at the base of her neck was jagged and ruined, It was clear to Vinard that they had used a serrated machete to separate her head from her torso. Slow, painful and messy, and done on purpose. Inside Ravina's mouth was a tiny Nokia mobile phone. A yellow post-it note was stuck on Ravina's head. It said, Call me. Virat bends down, trying to fight a wave of nausea. Grave forms into a ball of heat and threatens to explode his head. The smell of rotting flesh, embalming fluid, and delicious food had turned his former home into an exotic charnel house. He spits out some bile on the floor, staining it yellow, before rising and wiping his mouth. He takes three breaths. Then comes an angry cry, which he suppresses immediately. Virat picks the phone out of Ravina's mouth carefully and dials the only number stored in the contact section. <phone rings> Mr. Nariman, how is the welcome home party? Virat doesn't say anything back. You must be really enjoying the company of your guests and the excellent food. So much so that it has made you speechless, eh? (laughs) Who are you? Virat asks. That is none of your business. But you can refer to me as your father. Your father you didn't know you had. Who now owns your ass? <laughs> yes. Virat grunts in pain and anger. Listen, your wife had to go because she was a real pain. What's the expression? A thorn in our flesh. I mean, you would appreciate the gesture, given she was responsible for your daughter's death and all. You. Virat says. But the man ignores him and continues speaking. And your girlfriend, well, collateral damage, I'm afraid. We tried to finish you off, but you made her your shield, he said. I did not. Virat growls. Shh, shh, shh. No, Virat, no, 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 no. You bark and growl when I tell you to bark and growl. I don't think you get it. You are my bitch now. Virat glances at Nirmala's body with sadness. As the head of the syndicate, I am prepared to show some benevolence towards you and your junkie son. That is what we are here to talk about. The terms of a business proposal that will keep you and whatever is left of your pathetic family alive and kicking. Virat pulls out a chair and sits on it, phone pressed hard against his ears. Are you prepared to listen, or do you want to die right now? The man asks. I am listening, Virat says. Good, good boy. Or do you prefer a good dog? (laughs) It fills me with joy to see you like this, Virat. You are a legend in the business. You have indirectly worked for us in the past. You just didn't know about it. We are like the darkest shadow in the darkest night. Anyways... We are aware of the situation with your son, that uh, useless drug addict, the man said. His name is Praveen, Virat says. Whatever, we know where he is, and we can hand him over to you unharmed if you perform a hit for us, he says. How do I know if I can trust you? Birat says. You don't? Wait, why are you even trying to query our intentions? Do I need to remind you again, big man? You are at our mercy now. You are the shit stuck on our boots. So just shut up and listen. You have railroaded our sex trafficking network. Literally taken a machete to the whole thing. It's gone. We have to start afresh. And for us to do that, there is one last vestige of that old system that we need to take care of. The man on the phone pauses for dramatic effect. The accountant, the man who did the numbers, ferried millions of rupees that flowed into our coffers because some men in this country are sick fucks. We don't want to be seen as responsible for taking out people who are loyal to us. Not a good look, especially when we need to hire people from top to bottom to get the girls from their safe homes to our secret brothels all over again. That's right. We are going to rebrand and restart the business that you thought you had burned to the ground. Without sighs into the phone. You get my floor, man. You don't get to win, ever. You are going to do our dirty work by bumping off the accountant at his daughter's wedding. In return, you get to live. You get your son. And you get to work for us for the rest of your life. Virat wipes the beads of sweat on his forehead. What do you think, lady man? Will it be a yes? Or would you like your son's stiff, lifeless body to join you at the amazing lunch party? <laughs> Tell me this. How's the smell of failure in that dining room? All the women you fucked and loved now staring lifelessly at malai kofta and garlic naan. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. He laughs raucously, amused at his cruel joke. I will take your silence as a yes. The details will arrive on this phone. The front door suddenly bursts open. Virat pulls out his gun and aims it down the passageway. It was Chetiar, bearing a Glock handgun. Ah, I thought I asked you to leave, Virat says to him angrily. How could I? I was worried. I waited and when I didn't see you for a while, I decided to come in. Is everything okay? Jatiar asks. No. Virat says. Jatiar steps forward. Stop. I don't want you to come in here. Virat says. We will speak in the car. 20 minutes into their drive, Virat opens up to Chetiar about the horrifying diorama in the dining room and the syndicate's offer. Chetiar whimpers as he listens to his friend. He couldn't comprehend how Virat could be calm as he recounted the terrifying ordeal. I think they are bluffing about Praveen. I know how good he is at disappearing, Virat says. Think about it, Viru. This might be the only chance at peace you have with this mob. Just accept the deal. Chetiar says, They are playing at something else, my friends. And I am not going to let them win. Please do me a favour. Use all your networks, all your connections. And help me find my son. Please, do this one last thing for me. Virat says, Virat, but... Chetir begins to say, Virad raises his hand, and Chetir stops arguing." What are you going to do next, Viru? Chetir asks. I am going to a wedding, to kill an accountant. The festive tube lights had turned night into day and the colourful LED bulbs on trees resembled irradiated fruit that glowed green and red and orange. A 15-member drum band accompanied by a few musicians who played wind instruments belted out old Bollywood numbers like Tu Cheez Badi Hai Must Must. A raucous joyous throng of revellers Clogged the suburban street, blocking traffic and making everyone's life miserable in the name of celebrating someone's marital bliss. The fat groom was cruising on the back of a bedecked horse on the way to his bride's home, which was two streets away from his present location. Every time he jumped up and down to the rhythm of the celebratory music, the poor animal wept. Birat wished he had the liberty to kill the asshole for hurting the animal. His sole duty, his singular focus, was dedicated to killing the groom's future father-in-law, the accountant. His mark donned a white safari suit which was inappropriate for the weather. The man was sweating so profusely, it looked like he had taken a dip in a pool after getting dressed up for the occasion. The accountant was in his late forties, balding, with a bulbous nose and thick bushy eyebrows where birds could nest. The accountant was at the head of a welcoming party at the gates of the two-storied, freshly painted and gaudily decorated palatial home. Clearly, this was a backyard wedding, Virat could imagine the beautifully landscaped backyard with a pool and ornate pergolas that only people who made millions out of trafficking women could afford. There would be an elevated stage for the DJ and Bollywood singers, meat and veg buffet counters, shady alcoves that housed 20 kinds of whiskey from Scotland no less. It was a shame the accountant wouldn't get to enjoy any of it. Virat felt the small syringe containing the poison in his pocket. The kill would have to wait for a few minutes. First, he needed to pay a visit to the man in charge of the firecrackers. Virat had been watching the place for days, looking for the best kill zones and exit points. He spent hours drawing up a perfect plan. But he was not always beholden to them. He knew that on the day, fate had a way of throwing up surprises, both good and bad. He estimated that the bad luck would be organised by the syndicate. This was not a straightforward hit. The good came in the form of an overly enthusiastic 18-year-old, twice-removed cousin of the bride, who was handing out firecrackers to attendees to employ once the groom had dismounted and the horse had been sent away, lest it should get spooked. Virat was enthusiastic about the possibilities this presented. Billu and Ramu watched on as Virat moved around the crowd. The two thugs smiled at each other, feeling a sense of superiority over the greatest contract killer in Indian history. They had been tailing him for days and were moments away from gutting him once he had killed the mark for their overlords in the syndicate. Billu had to agree that this was a masterstroke on the part of the syndicate. Use the killer to mop up the final mess and then dispatch him to an early grave. The entire sordid tale of the failure of their human trafficking chain version 1 wiped clean from the annals of history. Bilu had gone over the plan with Ramu several times over the last few days. As soon as Virat jabbed the accountant with the chemical that would induce a massive heart attack, the two servants of the syndicate would emerge from the thronging crowd, knives concealed. Once they were behind Virat, Bilu would stick his knife in the base of Virat's skull and Ramu would slash open the groin region in the crook of his leg to damage the femoral artery. They had clear orders to ensure that Virad would have no chance to resurrect himself like a new-age Lazarus. He was not the kind of man you left behind wounded to fight another day. I'm going to buy the book written by that madam who comes on the morning TV show, Adamu said. Billy rolled his eyes. Which one? The seven effective habits of successful people, Ramu said. You are never going to find peace in your life if you keep up this reading habit of yours. It plants ideas in your head, notions of grandeur. You start thinking you are Abdul Kalam, Billu said. Ramu nodded as if he was considering Billu's advice. Billu continued. Be like me. I do a good taste job. Have vada pao from pushback fast food stall in Dongri place. Go home, watch some midnight masala videos. Relax using my hands or if I am really in the mood, head over to Rani's guest house to enjoy with the girls. I mean it's a perfect life. I have never felt the need to read about other people's life and be like them. But Bilu, Ramu began saying. Stop, Bilu interrupted him. Virat was on the move. Bilu rubbed his hand together and stretched. I will give you more life advice after we kill this fucker. You got your knife ready? Ramu smiled and nodded. Virat, who was making a beeline for the accountant, had suddenly taken a detour to talk to a lad handing out firecrackers. While this was odd, Bilu didn't make too much of it. Billu's hands itched. It was always a good sign. It meant he was going to find success tonight. Remember Saleh, I get the neck, you get the crotch. Billu said to Ramu. tapped on the firecrackers inside his pocket and smiled. Even in the middle of soul-crushing grief, he was glad he could relish the thrill of the kill. He was about to unleash mayhem. He was certain after years of soul-searching that he was put on earth to do so. The accountant, who licked his fingers as he counted thousands of soiled notes generated by illegal brothels across the country, Deserved to die. Virat wondered whether he tasted the tears of hapless women in those notes, including those of his precious Anya. Virat moved closer to the welcoming party, consisting of the accountant and his family members, who were now fending off the crowd that had swelled as the groom approached on his horse. there was a fair bit of pushing and shoving. Virat melted into a cloak of anonymity provided by the ocean of celebrants. He swam through the bodies like a shark seeking its prey. The perfect moment was about to manifest. But before that moment could come, an old man approached him and said, Ah, Chitranjan Babu, long time no see. I think you have the wrong person, Virat said in frustration. Are you not Sushila Ben's son, the lad who is a mining engineer in Odisha? The old man said. No, Virat said, casting a furtive eye at the location where he needed to be at to deliver the kill shot. Then a younger man arrived and pulled on the old man's shoulder. He said, Chacha ji, what are you doing here? The caterers are asking for you. Come on. The old man nodded at the young man and then looked back apologetically at Virat. Sorry, I am needed in the kitchen area. It's okay, Chachaji. Make sure there is enough sugar in the jalebis, Virat said. Virat watched the man leave and then speared hastily through the crowd. He was determined to get to the kill point on time. Virat was now right behind the accountant. He was close enough to do the deed. The perfect moment was close. The horse snorted and shook its head as it came to a stop in front of the welcome party. Their eager eyes and warm smiles were primed to delight the groom the garlands and fruits and rosewater dispensers in their hand, ready to be deployed once the young man dismounted. Virat lit the cracker. He then pulled out the syringe. He threw the cracker at the foot of the horse and jabbed the needle into the accountant's left buttock at the same time. The fluid oozed into the criminal's flesh. The cracker burst with a loud sound, spooking the animal and causing it to rear up. The groom tumbled off his mount and landed hard on the ground. Shocked at the sight, the accountant failed to notice the sharp pain in his back. The frightened horse ran straight at the welcoming party, knocking down people. Pandemonium broke out. Billu and Ramu emerged from the crowd with their knives drawn. Virat was standing near the accountant, about to deliver the payload. This signalled the beginning of the final phase of the operation. They both felt the surge of excitement as they clutched their knife handles harder. Ramu pulled on Billu's collar. Billu, uh, I forgot where you wanted me to strike. Was it the neck or the groin? Ramu said. Billu was about to whack his accomplice on the back of his head when the firecracker went off and all hell broke loose. The accountant had collapsed clutching his chest and the groom was crushed to death by the heavy footfalls of the same people who were celebrating his special day moments ago. Virat, who was standing before their eyes in a black shirt and cargo pants mere seconds ago, had now disappeared. Bilu and Ramu panicked as they scanned the fleeing crowd, hoping for a glimpse of their deadly mark. Virat watched his two would-be assassins from some distance away. Years ago, a rival gang had sent a contract killer who had trained with some of the best intelligence agencies in the world to track and kill Virat. It took half a day for Virat to spot him. That man ended up in a bathtub, his life-breath bubbling into the watery grave. These two clowns, who looked like they had walked out of an 80s movie fight scene, were not exactly slick when it came to surveillance operations. Virat had made contingencies in his plan for dealing with them and he was about to deliver some surprises. And to make things easier for him, the two idiots split up. He served the swarming mob of people to sneak up to Damu who was surveying his surroundings, open-mouthed, with a terrified look in his eyes. Virat enjoyed the fear at large in his victim's body language the fear and the knowledge that Ramu had no clue of his imminent death. Uncle Arjun taught him knife techniques from an ancient text called Esgrima Criola, the definitive text of South American fencing. His uncle would sit with him for hours reading the textbook and then he would help him practice the drills on a banana tree. Once Virat had mastered the moves by shadow fencing for hundreds of hours, they sparred with a life weapon. There were so many scars on Virat's wrists from those painful lessons. Know the way of the wrist and you will have mastery over your enemy's life, Uncle Arjun used to say. Virat crept right up to Ramu and clamped both his hands around his enemy's wrist which held the weapon. He cranked the joint up and to the back, causing extreme pain and shutting out the nerves. Ramu was disarmed, and the knife fell into Virat's arm. With the swiftness of a lightning strike, Virat placed the blade over Ramu's heart and pressed down on the butt of the knife with both hands. All of Ramu's dreams died in an instant. The man who dreamt of opening a reiki parlor to serve his tourists in Darjeeling crumpled to the ground. Bilu had done his best to find Vidat, but he soon realized that the man had used the cover of the fleeing crowds to escape his clutches. Shit, 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 Bilu said, slapping the flat part of his blade against his thighs. The streets were starting to empty out. The wails of the bride and relatives clutching the dead bodies of the accountant and the groom filled the air. Police and ambulance sirens howled in the distance. Bilu sheathed his knife. At least the accountant was dead. They would deal with Virat afterwards. Where is that idiot Ramu? Bilu wondered. He scanned the scene once more. This time his eyes fell upon the collapsed dead body of his colleague, lying in an ever-expanding pool of blood. Shit, this can only mean one thing, he thought. Bilu ran for his life, without bothering to check on his erstwhile companion. He needed to get to his car. Bilu prayed to his family deity and promised he would never drink or pay for prostitutes again. His thongs, which featured yellow pineapples and pink flamingos, slapped loudly against the asphalt as he ran for his ambassador car. Please God, please protect me, he said. Billu could now see his car. Every meter he had to conquer to get to his vehicle raised his heart rate. He looked over his shoulder. He looked to the sides. No sign of Virat. The suspense was unbearable. Bilu pulled out his knife as he neared the car. He waved the knife around like a madman, creating a defensive barrier of sweeping blade strikes. He got into the car, locked the door, placed the knife on his lap and tried to bring down his elevated heart rate. He was thirsty. He needed a big drink. Bilu turned around and placed his hand on the back seat to look for the bottle of mineral water. His hand found Virat's muscly thighs. The killer's silhouette was perfectly hidden in the shadows, so much so that Bilu couldn't even detect the shape of the gun that was leveled at his head. Virat would have tortured him if Bilu possessed valuable information. But he knew this was another mistake on the part of the syndicate. They had underestimated him again by sending inexperienced killers for hire to relegate him to the pages of mob history. Or maybe there was a logic to it. Maybe they thought two sneaky knife-bearing killers could do what a large squad of assassins with machine guns couldn't deliver. And there was another reason for what Virad was about to do next. Earlier today, Chityar had come back with information that confirmed Vidat's beliefs. The syndicate did not know Praveen's location. Most importantly, Chityar's source was able to do one better and find out where Praveen was hauled up. Virat was prepping for the endgame. He was going to find his son and entrust him in the safe and capable hands of old friends. It was time to clear up all of the syndicate's misconceptions. It was time to go to war. Virat shot below at point-blank range and the windscreen was suddenly transformed into a painting of flesh and blood. I cannot protect you anymore, Virat. Chetir said on the phone, You have now declared open war on them. I know, Virat responded, carefully manoeuvring the gypsy around the portholes on the weather-beaten road. He had driven three days straight to arrive at the breadbasket of India. A once prosperous agricultural marvel, the state was now home to drug traffickers and their victims. Both died in equal numbers and rotted in undignified graves in the home of India's Green Revolution. Driving through economically depressed and mournful-looking towns, peopled by drug-addled youngsters staggering about like zombies, did nothing to improve Virat's mood. But he was learning to be thankful for the small victories. I want to thank you for finding Praveen, Virat said into the phone. You can thank me one more time. I found out about the man who spoke to you. The man who leads the syndicate. Chetiar said. Virat's steel grip tightened on the steering wheel as anger burned bright red behind his eyes. Pepe Tirmal de Souza, born to a Portuguese father and a Goan mother cut his teeth training arms to the LTT and the Mujahideen. That is what brought him to the attention of the syndicate. He was their chief arms pusher for decades. When the syndicate got out of the guns and the missiles game to focus on drugs, gambling and human trafficking, Pepe was sidelined by the then leader, who promptly found out you don't fuck with the man. I believe the unfortunate leader was found crucified to his Monet painting in his Mumbai penthouse. He is dangerous, Virat. I hope you know what you are getting into, Chetir said. Like I said, I don't want you to be involved with me anymore, Virat said. Well, I will convey as much when I meet them today, Chetir said. You are meeting them today? Virat asked. Yep. I think they want to ensure that I know nothing of you, and that I have their loyalty. I'm going to say a fat no to the first, and an enthusiastic yes to the second, Chetyar said. Watch your back, Chetiar," Virat said with concern. You need to listen to your own advice, my friend, Chetyar said. I will keep this phone with me till you confirm you are okay after the meeting with them. Virat said. Oh, there is no need, Chetir said. I was not asking for your opinion, Virat said. Call me after the meeting. Good luck, my friend. I hope you find Praveen in a half-decent shape, Chetir said. I hope so, my friend. Virat said as he pushed down the pedal to race towards the drug den where Praveen was holed up. Chetiyar had to wear a black bag over his head before he was taken in an Audi A4 to the outskirts of Indraprastha city. They stopped by the side of the highway which cut through dry bushland. Electricity poles were the only sign of civilization on this parched stretch of geography. It reflected the harshness of the hot sun that lay into it without mercy day in and day out. He was forced out of the car by a burly man and pushed into the front seat of another Porsche European car which was waiting for them. Instead of heading down the highway, the car turned into a straight, unending stretch of unpaved road that took them deeper into the arid plains that dominated the region. There was a constant noise of something being dragged behind the car. A grating sound generated by an object sliding over the surface of the gravel road. ''You can take off the mask now,'' a voice said from the rear seat. Chetiar took off his mask and surveyed his immediate surroundings. A muscly hairy man in a black suit gripped the steering as he peered through the dirt cloud thrown up by the racing wheels. A man in a navy blue suit was seated at the back. He was clean-shaven and had a botox-plump, creepy smile plastered across his face. His long silvery hair was tucked in a ponytail, and it was evident that plastic surgery had been used liberally to de-age his features. The audible flip-flapping trailing the car bothered Chetia more than the assortment of freaks he was trapped with in the car. What is that sound? Chetia asked. I keep telling these idiots to service the car regularly, but they don't listen, the man said. Then he moved forward in his seat and breathed on Shatiyar's neck. It seems no one listens to me these days, the man said in a disappointed voice. May I know who I am speaking to? Shatiyar asked. The man sat back on his seat and placed one of his legs over the other, radiating an aura of authority. The boss of bosses? The Emperor of the Syndicate? Call me whatever you like. Okay, Chatir said. You wanted to talk to me about Virat, so talk. He has caused our organisation further problems. Do you know of his whereabouts? The man asked. No, I don't know where he is, Chityar said. I made the mistake of trying to save him last time, not knowing that the syndicate was involved, and I paid the price for it. I believe I have atoned for my mistakes by surrendering one of my prized territories to you. I also found where Virat was holed up and guided him to you. I have paid my tax. I don't want to jeopardize my business anymore, Chityar said. Hmm, a well-rehearsed answer, the man said with a guffaw. He rubbed his hands together furiously and clapped loudly, sending a chill down Chetiar's spine. So, you are telling me, after helping us organise the parley with that dickhead, you did not help him in any manner? The man said. Yes, that is exactly what I am saying, Chetiar said. The sound coming from the rear of the car continued to grate on his senses. Chetiyar asked again, What is that sound? Chetiyar, we really appreciate everything you have done for us. So I don't want to sound ungrateful when I say, We are very disappointed in you. But I am not going to sit here like an income poop and tolerate your suggestion that you are not actively helping him. We know you called the great Vidar Nariman this morning. And thanks to your contact, we are now tracing his movements. His death is only a matter of hours away, the man said. Chetyar gulped audibly. The man in the rear seat gazed out of the window and squinted. He then let out a big sigh. You know what I hate about this place? It is not near the ocean. My father loved the ocean. He used to say, Pepe, the ocean is bright. It is pregnant with so many possibilities. You can gaze upon the horizon and know that it leads to distant lands and great adventures. This bushland we are racing through, it's a place of death and surrender. There is no hope here, no horizons to aspire to, just miles of dirt and dried grass and petrified trees, Pepe said. Chetier was sweating like the insides of the car was on fire. Stop the car, Pepe said. The driver slammed the brakes. Get. Out, Pepe said. Chetiar hesitantly opened the door and stepped out. The dust raised by the convoy settled, and Chetiar scanned the barren wasteland that he was sure would become his eternal resting place in a matter of moments. Tears welled in his eyes. He lost control of his bowels. I have a parting gift for you, Chetiar. Have a look behind the car. Pepe said. Chityar gingerly walked to the rear of the car. The constant noise that was annoying him was generated by a body that was dragged along by the car. There was no mistaking whose body it was thanks to some of the clothing that was still intact on the cadaver. Chettyar screamed in horror at the shredded mass of flesh lying before him. Then a bullet silenced his scream, the shot echoing across the parched, wind-burned landscape. When Virat pulled into the parking lot of the dilapidated primary school, there was an ambulance parked in front of it. The school compound featured two rectangular buildings that had holes in its white brick walls and was missing parts of its roofing. Shit stains, rude drawings and a confusing jumble of damaged posters graced its facade. Virat ran to where the paramedic was working on a young man lying on the floor at the entrance of one of the buildings. A small group of junkies had lined up to watch the proceedings. The young man had clearly overdosed. Please don't let this be, Praveen, Virat thought. As he got closer, he saw the unkempt afro-hairstyle of the downed patient. Praveen had similar hair. Virat nervously squeezed both his hands. No, 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 he said he pushed the gawking drug addicts from his path and bent down next to the paramedic. What do you want? The paramedic said. My son, Virat said. Is he your son? The paramedic asked, pointing a gloved hand to his patient's face. Your son is dead, ma'am, a junkie said from behind him. The same man proceeded to clap and started laughing like a deranged hyena Virat looked at the face of the young man who was in distress. It wasn't Praveen. Suddenly, the patient started convulsing wildly, form spurting out of his mouth. Get out of my way, the paramedic said as he headed to the ambulance to grab life saving equipment. Virat stood up and watched, his powerful hands covering his mouth. The paramedic tried injecting medication to counter the effects of the drugs and when that didn't seem to restore the patient's vitals, he started performing CPR and mouth-to-mouth. All the while, the noisy junkie continued ranting and raving. In a matter of moments, life faded from the young man's face. Even jolts from the defibrillator couldn't save him. Now, well, another one to cart to the morgue, the paramedic said, standing up and removing his medical gloves. What a fucking waste! The man continued. I take it he's not your son, the paramedic said, turning to Vidat. No, Vidat said. No, not his son, not his son, <laughs> not his son, not his son. The junkie roared with laughter. Virat rushed at the lunatic, grabbed his filthy collar, and smashed his left hand into the miscreant's jaw. Crumpled to the floor like a sack that had just been emptied Someone clapped in the distance Virat turned to the owner of the voice with a raised fist and said Do you want some of this too? Oh, how the great Virat Nariman has fallen Now reduced to a two-bit muscle for hire Who beats up junkies Praveen said He was dressed in a filthy pair of jeans and a weathered long-sleeve hoodie. Praveen, Virat said. The youngster pulled his hood down, revealing a pale, scratch-ridden face, and addressed his father arrogantly. It's me, old man. Congratulations, you have found me. But I am not coming with you, you fucking monster. Virat's mobile phone chimed. He was tempted to ignore it, but then he remembered that he had asked Chetiyar to give him a bus after the meeting with the syndicate. Birat was worried about the whole business. It was unlikely that the syndicate would bump off the head of a crime family and jeopardize their interests. But then again, the syndicate did not respect the codes of their business. They were the Goliaths of the Indian Crime Empire the mobile issued another notification sound. You heard me, man. I'm not coming with you, Praveen reiterated. Calm the hell down, Praveen, Virat said as he glanced at the phone. A photograph slowly downloaded onto the screen. It featured the severed head of Chetiyar next to a human body shredded to strings of meat. There was no mistaking the adventure jacket on the disfigured dead body. Suketu Prashad. They had dragged the old man behind a car till most of his flesh was stripped away from his bones. Virat bit down a wave of disgust and rage. No, not the old man, not him. This was no way for the old soldier to go. He remembered the care and the enthusiasm the old man had showed in helping him heal his bullet ridden body. Virat's heart ached at the flood of memories from the farm. Underneath the image were the following words We are just around the corner. P.S. We killed the horses too. Have you finished reading your text, old man? Who is it from? That doctor slut you left my mother for? I'm not fucking going anywhere, man. You are a fucking bastard. I'm calling mother, Praveen said. He seemed unsteady on his feet. The young man had clearly injected his first dose for the day. Shut up, Praveen. I don't think you have a choice. There are people coming to kill us. And I'm your best chance to stay alive, Virat said. No sooner had he finished, the roaring engines of two jeeps shattered the sleepy ambience of the town. Come, Virat said, rushing towards the gypsy. Haruti Gypsy was a gazelle, paws length away from the deadly moors of the jeeps racing behind it. The lighter chassis kept Virat's ride just out of the grasp of the two vehicles. But if you listened to Praveen scream in the passenger seat, you would think they had already been boarded by a horde of barbarians. You're going to get us killed, you're going to get us killed. I'm fucked. Why did I listen to you? Why, 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 why did I listen to you? Praveen raged against the screaming wind buffeting the gypsy. Virat didn't have time to attend to his son's histrionics. He was focused on the badly maintained road ahead, full of curves, broken safety treatments and trees encroaching into optimal cornering spots. It was like a nightmare where you were naked in public and fire ants were crawling up your ass. He didn't have time to deal with the overwhelming grief that was gnawing at his heart. When he first saw the photo, his rage and sadness were focused on what the syndicate had done to poor Suketu Prasad. It was almost as if he was not surprised by the sight of Chettyar's decapitated head. Virat hated to admit it, but he was clearly not expecting Chettyar to make it out alive. He had anticipated no other outcome for his dearest friend. Initially, Virat's anger was directed towards Chettyar for getting himself killed. Then, that anger gave way to a raging torrent of sorrow for his lost mate. But this was not the right time or place to dissolve in the ocean of misery. Virat buried that aching feeling in the depths of his consciousness, like he buried bodies, deep and without any hope of discovery. Praveen continued screaming and wailing as shots rang and spanked off the gypsy it left ragged dents in its wake and slowly chipped away at the physical integrity of the vehicle. Virat's excellent control of the gypsy and the zigzag driving technique he employed was the only reason why their tyres weren't shredded. Virat watched his pursuers weave in and out of his sight in the rear view and side mirrors. In spite of the perilous situation he found himself in, He was focused and breathing calmly. Virat felt the fear, but he used the knowing tension to analyze the situation and craft a kill plan. Just like a human being, a vehicle had vulnerable spots and flaws. Virat knew this because an understanding of motor engineering was essential to planting car bombs that delivered clean results. Some of the jeep models were heavy, unwieldy beasts and Virat could see how the swerving corners that lay ahead of them could be used to exacerbate those weaknesses and fulfil his destructive intentions. Virat turned and fed the loop of the steering to the left with the finesse of a Japanese swordsmith crafting a samurai sword, dodging a rattling shower of bullets in the process. He made the gypsy hug the leftmost edge of the road as he eased on the pedal. The eyes of the driver in the jeep right behind him lit up. A smile appeared on his pockmarked face. He followed Virat's suit and mimicked his action while speeding up. Gotcha, motherfucker, he said. Get the guns ready, boys. Virat pulled his gun out from his leather gun holster and pressed it against his left thigh. Then he stepped on the pedal and accelerated. There was a bulbous tree root extending its unwelcome expanse into the weather beaten asphalt, and Virat intentionally swerved in the last minute to avoid it. The obstruction, which was too large for even the treads of the Jeep, appeared in the rival driver's line of sight in the last minute. He was caught in two mines as he raced the wheels over it at the same time as trying to swerve away from it. Virat took a deep breath, clutched his gun, turned and pointed it at the driver's side of the positionally compromised jeep. Two perfectly placed shots cracked the windshield and killed someone in the back seat. Spraying blood further compromised the driver's visibility as the vehicle plunged its twisted right tyre into a large porthole. For a second, the driver assumed he was the one Virat had shot, and he panicked. That is all it took, a confusing maelstrom that barely lasted for seconds, created by a series of perfectly sequenced events which led to poor driving strategies and even worse safety outcomes. The jeep flipped and slammed on its side, shattering bones and breaking necks, and killing two more of the inhabitants on the spot. Vidat turned his attention back to the road in one smooth swivelling motion, like a perfect glass of scotch swimming across your tongue. The final jeep in the convoy swerved around the twisted shell of the vehicle and continued following Vidat. Vidat, One more to go, Virat thought. Oh, fuck, 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 I peed my pants, I'm wet, oh. Praveen offered uselessly. Wait till I make you shit your pants, Virat said. The ride is not over, son. I'm not your fucking son, Praveen said, as a few harmless shots from a handgun clanged against the frame of the gypsy. Virat continued driving the vehicle in a haphazard vector, dangerously evading obstacles in the last second, including speeding vehicles from the opposite direction. But the jeep followed like it was tethered to its prey. Virat noted that this driver was a professional, unlike the previous charioteer he had dispatched. A man in a denim shirt and pants, wearing a bright red alligator leather belt, featuring a large bullhead belt buckle, poked his head and torso out of the rear right seat of the remaining jeep. He had an automatic rifle in his hand. A non-stop barrage of shrapnel tore up the gypsy. All of Virat's expertise in defensive driving and his attempts to trick the jeep into flipping off obstacles failed. The rear tyres were shot to shreds and the horrible squeals emanating from the torn rubber matched Praveen's howls of terror. A rumbling sound came alive in the distance. A thrumming herald of terror and violence speeding in the direction of the two vehicles engaged in a deadly game of cat and mouse. Virat's Gypsy lost its momentum as the rim and the axle sparked against the black surface of the road. More gun-torting enemies emerged out of the windows of the jeep. Death was not far now, unless the roaring sounds which was growing louder by the minute brought with it a host of angels who were hell-bent on protecting Vidat and his son. were angels of a different kind tattooed muscled men with big bushy beards riding iron steeds the unmistakable roar of dozens of Harley Davidsons filled the air fat boys and soft tails and sportsters and diners and V-Rods thundered into view the sight of chrome and black leather enveloping the jeep filled Virat's heart with joy who are they? Are they here to kill us too? Praveen asked, strands of spittle hanging from his mouth, his face awash with tears. That's my son, is the cavalry, Virat said, as he eased the gypsy into the curb on the left. Like an army of metal and stygian locusts, the motorcycle gang surrounded the jeep, pumping bullets into its interior from glocks and shotguns. The jeep tried to speed off, but the souped-up cruisers stayed on it like a pack of hunters determined to acquire their prized trophy. Finally, the jeep's dead driver ran the vehicle off the road, carrying within it the bullet-ridden bodies of several of the syndicate's top gunmen. The jeep slammed into a large rock, flipped up and forward, and landed on its roof with a loud crash. The bloody bodies were further peppered with shattered glass and ragdolled against the insides of the jeep. One of the motorcyclists rode closer to the damaged vehicle. He primed a grenade and rolled it lovingly towards the side of the upturned vehicle that housed the fuel tank. As he rode back to join his brethren, the grenade exploded, compromising the fuel chamber. Fire wreathed the metal coffin as its occupiers, some of whom were alive screamed till their vocal cords burned off. The lead motorcyclist, who was dressed in a raven-black pair of jeans and leather vest, sported a ginormous grey beard and an orange turban. He rode up to Virat and Praveen, and beamed a friendly smile. We were right on time, hey maestro? You were, sartaj, and you are as deadly and efficient as I always remember you to be. Sartaj extended a tattooed muscly arm over the handlebars and Virat shook it. Virat pulled back his arms and waved at the rest of the gang. Thank you, boys. Virat said to Sartaj, Once again, I thank you. I am glad I let your boss know well in advance of my arrival. Without your iron cavalry, my son and I would have been toast. No mention, Maestro. We all owe you a big one. Besides, you can thank the boss yourself. Sartaj said. A black van came racing in from the distance and braked hard right next to the trio. He's eagerly waiting to see you. Sartaj Singh said, pointing to the van. Me too. Vidat said with a smile. Pastor Matthew Theragan was a tall, wiry man whose eyes still contained the menace of the past. The notorious ex-motorcycle gang leader wrapped his tattooed arms around Vidat Nariman. Then it was his wife Mahi's turn. She was physically the exact opposite of her soulmate. Short and stocky, she had a smile that could brighten the darkest den. Welcome to the Empire of Grace, Brother Virat, the pastor said, as he swept his hand gracefully to showcase the three buildings in the compound. A small church and two long rectangular single-storied buildings painted white. One served as a de-addiction centre, and the other was a homeless shelter. Mahi, the pastor's Sikh partner, smiled beatifically at Virat, as if she had just been reunited with a long-lost brother. Both husband and wife had kept their respective faiths and practised the finest morals of both great religions to the best of their ability they dedicated their lives to the service of others. The pastor was of the opinion that this was the best way to wash away the sins of the past. Behind Virat, the thirty or so motorcyclists revved the engines to show their appreciation. Virat embraced the pastor once again. You saved our lives. I didn't want to drag you back into a world you left. But I had no choice. You are the only one whom I can entrust my son with. I might be out of the game and it is true that these days I serve the good Lord and his subjects. But I am not of the opinion that kind gestures alone can save humanity. Sometimes, to preserve the good souls you have to take some evil souls, the pastor said. My men mostly transport medicines and essentials on their iron steeds these days. But if the need arises, they can also pull out sword-off shotguns from their saddlebags. I saw them in action, sharp as ever, Virat said. Your son is like my son, Virat, the pastor said with a smile. Mahi placed a reassuring arm on Virat's shoulders. We will look after him, Viru. Virat turned to his right to find Praveen had gone walkabout. When he looked over his shoulder, he found the young man wandering amongst the parked motorcycles, checking out their mechanical brilliance. You know the only reason the lads are allowing him to touch those motorcycles is because he is your son, the pastor said with a laugh. Yes, Virat said. Joining in on the laughter. The derelict shack was located on the notorious Highway 85, the road that took the most number of lives in India. Parts of the windy asphalt track wound around mountains like a serpent before plunging down into heavily forested valleys. Presently, a black Volvo station wagon was traversing the treacherous route like a black panther on the hunt. Calls of primitive animals rang through the canopy, expressing disdain for the car trespassing on their domain. The station wagon once belonged to a funeral home which had made modifications to extend the rear cabin to accommodate longer coffins. It was only appropriate that its second owner was a man who regularly sent business to funeral homes around the country. He was simply known as Nisajar in the business, the night creature who had piled bodies upon bodies for criminal organisations in the subcontinent for the last three decades. The Mafia was not his only client. He had just come back from Sri Lanka after committing at least 40 bodies to mass graves for the ruling government. The Nishajar craved variety and he knew he was going to get to sink his talons into something really juicy when he parked his black funereal car in front of the dilapidated wooden shack. Three Mercedes cars were parked in front of it. Men in printed shirts and jeans roamed the perimeter with machine guns. The Nishachar stepped out of the car and breathed in the moist air of the forest. He stepped forward and let two men pat down his lean, five-foot-ten body. They ran their hands over his left titanium knee and his scarred skin with some concern. You did not survive in this business for three decades without accumulating a fair amount of battle scars. Bone replacements, fused fractures, grafted skin, digits restored to their original condition thanks to plastic surgery. The Nishachar was the closest one could come to becoming Frankenstein. The two men inspecting him stood up and studied his face. They saw the face of death staring back at them. His fair skin, decorated with peppery stubbles, and his midnight black pupils made him look like someone who had stepped out of a 1970s French noir movie. The men waved him on, and the Nishachar climbed the rickety stairs of the shack to enter its shadowed innards. The building was once a Department of Forestry storage space, now reclaimed by the forest and the elements. The sight of a table and two chairs greeted the Nishachar. A man swathed in shadows was seated in one of the chairs. Sit he said to the Nishachar. The hitman obliged. The man pushed a photo and a check towards the hired killer. The hitman's eyes widened when he saw the number on the check. He drooled when he saw whose photo it was. I take it there has been a fair amount of professional rivalry between the two of you in the preceding decades. I understand that you have lost some lucrative contracts because of this man. The man covered in shadows could have been the child of darkness, for he spoke with the assurance of one who had been birthed into its treacherous arms. The Nishachar, a man of few words, did not intend to change that habit for the shadowy creature in front of him. He just nodded. I am of the belief that the journey is more important than the destination. The man seated across from the Nishachar said, You understand what I am getting at? The man said. The Nishachar nodded again. A faint sliver of light fell on the man's chest as he moved forward in his seat. The Nishachar observed that his client was wearing an expensive Italian suit, and he smelled like herbal tea. There were emperors, and then there were discreet entities that controlled them like puppets, people who crafted structures of power that only existed for show, their real purpose masked by layers of deception. The Nishajar instinctually understood that this man belonged to that class of entities, puppeteers, shadow masters, The man let out a deep sigh and followed it with a few deep inhalations and exhalations. I am about to lose my patience with my own people and take things into my own hands. But that will be the equivalent of Shiva's dance of destruction. We don't want that. Not yet. So... I am looking for someone methodical to work the beat and help me get rid of this trash. An angry finger landed on the photograph of Virat Neriman. Understood, the Nishajar said. I will be methodical as always, and I will only strike when the time is perfect. The contract killer got up from the chair and turned to exit the shack. I can tell you are a true professional. You didn't ask who I am, the man in the shadow said. I know who you are, the Nishajar said, and he sensed the man obscured by darkness tense up in his seat. You are the devil, the hitman said. The pastor had a concerned look on his face as he scrutinized the photo on Virat's phone. People used to think we were a violent lot, huh, brother Virat? He said, handing back the phone to Virat. Virat nodded as he accepted the phone. He had destroyed the SIM and the phone right after he received the photo and the accompanying message. Now that the dead bodies of the pursuers were buried under canola fields and the wrecked vehicles had been crushed into cubes of steel at the local wrecking yard, the loop was hopefully closed. Virat's tormentors couldn't possibly trace him and his son to the pastor's sanctuary. But it paid to be extra wary because the syndicate was involved. Virat couldn't afford to be reckless or slip up anymore. more. He didn't want one more person to die for his sins. Sartaj Singh, the motorcyclist who had led the gang's rescue effort, came into the room with glasses of salt lessee. He placed them on the table and stepped back, crossing his giant muscular arms across his barrel chest. Tattoos of multicoloured snakes came alive as his muscles twitched. Virat was not fooled by the warm welcome he received, or the glowing response to his request to offer refuge to Praveen. He knew that in his line of work, everything was a business transaction. All favours were paid for in blood. Sartaj looks after the gang these days. I am but a nominal head. Like I said to you before, we have ceased all our smuggling operations. But should you need us to back you up on anything... The pastor said. No, I can only accept your offer to treat my son and to be his guardian. Beyond that, I will not compromise the safety of your wonderful family or your men. You saw what they did to the people who helped me. I have placed you in enough danger already. The pastor chuckled. Do you think Chetiyar's family will retaliate? Sartaj asked. I intend to find this out in a few days, Virat said. Virat turned his attention to the pastor. I am serious about not compromising your safety. The pastor threw a small plastic bag of white crystals on the table. Our lives have already been compromised by this. Our safety is already forfeit for the stance we have taken against drug trafficking. The pastor stood up from his chair. He towered over Virat as he looked him straight in the eyes. The pastor placed both his hands on the table and growled. Who do you think produces and sells this shit in this region? Who do you think is responsible for the plight of the gibbering, weeping boys and girls in my dormitory? Virat shifted in his chair as he took in the information. You didn't see the bullet holes sprayed onto our walls because I got the men to paint over it. Who do you think does all the drive-by shootings in this region? The pastor continued. I have lost three men to these vile bastards and God knows how many addicts. Virat, you are not putting us in danger. You and your son are in the hotbed of danger, the pastor said before sitting down again. Virat was hoping that whatever option was placed before him was of a defensive nature. That was his plan all along, to get Praveen to this safe refuge and guard him till the pastor healed him and decided to move him to somewhere safer. Maybe even get Praveen a new passport and a new identity. It was all over for Vidat, but Praveen was still young. The pastor had contacts in the Vori, the Russian mafia. Maybe his son could have a fresh chance at life in Moscow. Vidat would be the watchdog, guarding the gates till Praveen's safety was assured. That was his preference. But if they demanded that he needed to go hunting, he was not in a position to refuse. I will help your son, and I will look after the future of your son, if you take care of the syndicate's drug manufacturing unit in our district. Virat sighed and joined his hands in front of him on the table. "Ah, Tell me about this place, Virat said. You know you don't have a choice in this matter, Vedant said to Praveen. They were facing off against each other inside one of the consultation rooms in Pastor Matthew's rehab clinic. You can't make me do this, you bastard, Praveen said angrily. I know I can't, but you have no choice, because if I am gone, then there will be no one to look after your affairs. Vidat said. I am mother. I don't need you, Praveen said haughtily. She has not been picking my calls for a few weeks. So maybe she is overseas. But when she gets back, I will tell her that you are hassling me, that you kidnapped me. Vidat put his muscly arms on his hip and looked down at the white tiles on the floor. He took a deep breath before he responded, Your mother is dead, and the people who killed her are coming to kill both of us. Praveen slumped into the leather chair, reserved for doctors visiting the clinic. No, 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 he muttered. What people? You killed her. You killed her, just like you killed Anya. Suddenly, Praveen leapt from the chair. He grabbed a ballpoint pen from a nearby table and rushed at his father, with the makeshift weapon held up. Virat did not move. Praveen stabbed Virat's chest with the plastic object, which promptly broke in two. Praveen cried as he jabbed the damaged half of the pen into his father's body. After a dozen or so blunt strikes, He fell to the floor panting and lay there drooling and wailing softly in a weakened state. You don't even have the energy to kill a man. You hate with all your heart, Virat said as he bent down and placed a hand on Praveen's heaving chest. Virat proceeded to tell his son the true reason for Anya's death and the shocking sight he saw at their family home. Praveen moaned as if his body was being torn asunder when Virat described the final state of his mother's body. You did this. You did this, he said, squirming on the floor. If motivation is what you are looking for, then consider this. If you get better, you will have the strength to kill me, a man you hold responsible for the death of your mother and your sister. Virat said, as he stood up. In fact, I will let you kill me, if you surprise us all with your inner strength. A strength I know you have, Virat said, extending a hand. Praveen sat up and wiped his tears. After considering the offer for a while, he grabbed onto his father's hand and pulled himself up. They faced off again. The anger in Praveen's eyes, a harbinger of all that would come to pass. Virat's end would be at the hands of his son. Virat smiled wryly and then exited the room. Pastor Matthew Thuragan, who was waiting outside, nodded at Virat. Virat responded in kind and said, He is all yours. Virat stood underneath the shade of an ageing tree in the orchard grounds attached to a temple, watching the funeral rites from the distance. He cut a lonely figure far away from the inconsolable crowds as Chetiyar's body was committed to the flames. The wind carried the sounds of Sanskrit chants and distressing wails to Virat's ears. His dear friend of many years, The lion of Bandra, the Chennai king of smuggler's town, was now a charred mass of ash and bones. He watched motionlessly as the pyre transformed into a bed of cinders. He was preparing to turn around to leave when he saw Chityar's son dressed in just a dhoti walking towards him. His face was covered in sacred ash and sweat and tears. Virat waited. My condolences, Nilesh, Virat said, when the forty-year-old man, who was a spitting image of his father, stopped in front of him. He was balding, had a portly frame, and his facial features were soft. But his eyes exuded a ruthlessness which announced that you underestimated this man at your own peril. You know, Vidat Pai. My siblings want your head on a platter, Nilesh said, turning around and gazing at his younger sister and brother, who were weeping uncontrollably in the distance. Virat nodded. I can understand why they would feel so. I'm sorry, that," He began to say, when Nilesh cut him off. They are not like my father. They don't understand the value of loyalty and friendship. I do. I remember what you have done for my family. You are your father's son, Virat said. But here's the thing, Virat. There are parts of me that are superior to my father, Nilesh said. He started pacing back and forth as Virat looked on. He had gotten softer And reduced the profile and the size of our business. Like a lot of crime families, he decided not to compete with the syndicate. To let them grow unchallenged. Not thinking that one day we would become their bitches. We gave up territories when they asked us to take our business elsewhere. We paid them taxes that were unfair to us. We made compromises that were inimical to our friends. Your father had his reasons, Virat interjected. Not sound reasons, Virat Bai," Nilesh said, raising his voice to counter Virat's argument. He stopped pacing and fixed Virat with a steely gaze. I will take revenge for what's happened. Of this, you can be assured, Virat said. Nilesh walked up to Virat and looked him in the eye. You have balls, Virat Bhai. I commend you for that. Why else would you turn up to a place where people are screaming for your head? Nilesh chuckled and patted Virat on the shoulder. He then walked over to the tree, underneath whose shade they stood, and placed a hand on its trunk. I have told the temple committee that owns this land that this tree is old and rotting from the inside. It's been here for too long. Time for it to go, Nilesh said. Like me, Vidat said with a sigh. Not you, Virat Bhai, Nilesh said with a wry smile. What is the line from the Bible? There is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to moan, and a time to dance. Nilesh walked up to Virat and shook his hands. It will be time to kill soon, Virat Pai. Nilesh pulled back his hand, turned around and walked away from the headman. As he departed, the new emperor of Chetiyar's crime empire shouted, Keep me posted on what's going on. I will, Virat responded. The Nishajar had parked his car next to a burial ground on the side of the highway to take a break from the long drive. He was on a journey to fulfil the instructions delivered to him in that dilapidated shack in the middle of the forest. Savour the journey was the directive, so the Nishajar made a quick call on who he needed to hurt to leave a dent in Virat's psyche. He was leaning against his Volvo, smoking his favorite brand of beady and savoring the golden dawn that spilled across a shrubland, when two young men with machetes decided to jump him. Give me the fucking car keys, man, the buck toothed kid said. Yeah, uh, do as he says, his companion said less convincingly. The hitman kept smoking. Pretending to be oblivious to the threats, the buck toothed kid slammed the machete into the car's door, rending its beautifully polished paint job. Now he had the nishachar's attention. The killer threw the beady away and turned to inspect the damage. He then spoke to the reluctant accomplice of the brat who had damaged his car. I'm going to make you a deal. It's a one-time offer. Your chipmunk friend here is going to die. But I will let you live. If you play soccer with me after I have dealt with him. The kid did not know what to say. He looked at his friend and then back at the Nishajar. He saw shoals of dark energy swim in the murderer's eyes. He realized that there was darkness in the world. And then there was the ink that crafted that gloom. This man was a creation of that primordial element. The scared kid nodded in agreement. The buck-toothed kid peed in his pants. After he had shot the wallaby carjacker, the Nishachar used the machete that lay next to the limb body to sever his head. He picked up the bloody trophy and walked with it for some distance before planting it on the dry soil. The killer smiled and surveyed the surroundings. When he was satisfied with his assessment, he turned to the kid who was alive and said, "You see those trees over there? That will be the goalpost. Let's play." On his flight back from Chettyar's funeral, he slipped into a nightmare-ridden sleep. A creature with glowing red eyes, resembling a bat that walked upright, shadowed his walk towards the edge of a cliff. When he got there, Virat gazed upon the surface of a turbulent ocean, dark as the storm-cloud-ridden skies above it. The creature had crept up right behind him. He could feel its putrid breath on the nape of his neck. Jump, it said. So he did. The drive back to the pastor's sanctuary was long. More remnants of the past bored into Virat's thoughts. Devina, Nirmala, Anya, Suketu Prashad, Chettyar. He felt the stares of their ghosts on the back of his head. I may be joining you soon, Virat said to the imagined spirits haunting the interior of the car. There were, of course, no ghost passengers in the car. Just a heavy pall of anxiety. Virat was worried. Would the pastor be successful in helping Praveen get rid of his addiction? Could he ensure safe passage for his son across the border? Would Virat be alive long enough to see his final wish fulfilled? When Virat arrived at the sanctuary, he rushed in to check on his son. Praveen was sleeping on a bed in a fetal position. He looked exhausted. A drip was feeding him vital medication to help him through the difficult initial phases of withdrawal. Virad remembered the pastor's words It will get worse before it gets better. So be patient, be brave. Virat stroked his son's forehead lovingly. He couldn't remember when he had done that previously. Virat was not a good father and with every act of domestic violence he drove his wife and children away from him. Only Anya was forgiving of his unforgivable sins. Praveen, not so much. Virat pulled up a stool and sat next to the bed. He settled into a comfortable position and sighed. Then, as if he was reading a children's book to his son, he opened his heart. He talked about his horrible childhood, Uncle Arjun handing him the keys to a violent kingdom, how he met Ravina, and his history of violence as a hitman. You are right to want to kill me. I deserve it, Virat said at the end. I just hope you find the strength to kick this habit, so you can be strong enough to wield a gun to finish the job. Well, Praveen looked like he was asleep. He was in fact awake, and listening to the confession of a monster he had hated all his life. He wanted to get better, Get stronger and slay this monster like those knights that slayed dragons. But he didn't like his chances. He was struggling to banish his addiction. Its death grip was so strong, every moment felt like a struggle to swim to the surface of a pool filled with black tar. Praveen thought he had heard his father cry, but he dismissed it as his mind playing tricks on him as the medication dripped into his veins. Sleep was a welcome escape from the torturous tug-of-war in his soul. Praveen broke out of the sanctuary just before sunrise. He didn't feel confident stealing one of the heavier Harleys, so he jacked the small dirt bike which belonged to one of the chefs who serviced the homeless shelter. He had fought the demon in his soul with determination for several days. But eventually, the gnawing hunger got to him. He was ready to give in to temptation. Praveen knew the easiest way to get a quick fix was to return to the drug den where his father had found him. he rode in the muted light of early dawn, enjoying the cool wind buffeting his hair. Soon, he would be able to inhale sweet vapours that will fill his blood with fire and ice. When he reached the den, an ambulance was parked up front. The paramedic, who was attending to the overdosed kid, the day his father dragged him into the gypsy, was leaning against the ambulance, enjoying a cigarette. Praveen parked the bike and strode past him without acknowledging his presence. You heading in there to get yourself killed? The paramedic asked. Praveen scoffed. I came to pick up a dead kid, but I have room for one more. I'm happy to wait for you. Praveen showed him the middle finger as he walked on. ''I remember you and your father from the other day,'' the paramedic said. Praveen turned around and stormed in the direction of the paramedic, anger writ large on his face. ''He's not my father. He's a fucking monster,'' Praveen said, getting up close and personal with the man. The paramedic threw his cigarette away and said, ''I saw the concern and sadness in that man you called a monster.'' when he mistook the patient I was looking after for you, his dearest son. He pushed his chest against Praveen's face and walked him back. Kid, I see a lot of gung-ho dick teenagers like you who think the world is black and white. You think you deserve to be the center of attention in a world that has gone to hell. I got news for you. You are part of the system just like everybody else, and the sooner you learn to be flexible about your circumstances, the better it will be for you. And you could start with flushing down some of those shitty thoughts filling up your brain. Like the fact that you think your father doesn't love you. Now, I don't know what he's done, but I refuse to believe that man has only wronged you. Find what is right with the cards that you're dealt with. And play the long game. Don't end up in a morgue before your time, kid. Praveen looked flustered as he stepped back and surveyed his surroundings. The dilapidated joint, just like its transient pill-popping occupants, was a monument to decay. If he stayed on, he would become part of its rot and demise. The paramedic's words stung him. He no longer felt the impulse to drown his pain in the miasma offered by drugs. For now, anyways the need would return. It would conquer him again. He would make the same trip. Did his father love him? Was that man capable of acts of affection, given his violent history? Sure, he was trying to be a responsible father recently, but how much of that was an act? Was the paramedic right about his worldview? Praveen knew the answers could not be found in the hallucinogenic crystals offered up by the drug den. For now, he would have to return to his treatment. He gave the paramedic an apologetic nod and then jumped on the dirt bike to head back to the sanctuary. Uncle Arya, Virat's guru, was used to seeing blurred shapes over the plastic bump that was the mouthpiece linking him to the oxygen tanks. Usually, these shapes resolved into nothingness. Shadows or fractal manifestations of light dictated by the movement of the sun across the sky. For a dying man, these were valued consolations. When pain and labored breathing are your constant companions, Shadowy manifestations are like angels. But this new darkness, creeping into the corner of his vision, was not angelic. It was a fallen creature, caressing its gun. Uncle Irie removed his mask. It's you, Nishachar. Is that what they still call you, these days? He said. Yes. You gave me that name, Guru. I am very protective of it. The Nishajar said. I had a feeling you would come for me. The Nishajar sighed in response. Are you are you going to kill Vidat? Uncle Adya asked. The Nishachar nodded as he sat on the bed. A chill spread through the old man's body. He had always felt that in the proximity of one of his favourite students. "Uh, I suppose uh, there is no other way, Uncle Arya said. I am afraid so the Nishachar said as he slowly unplugged the cables and tubes on the array of medical equipment that surrounded the old man. There is only one entry point, a heavily guarded gatehouse. The other three sides of the warehouse are surrounded by swampland. There are a few tiny islands on the swamp, all heavily mined. Sartaj Singh explained, as Pastor Matthew and Virat surveyed the syndicate's drug manufacturing facility on Google Maps. Let's say we take out all the guards on the outer perimeter. That gives ample warning to the gunmen inside. Sartaj continued. They will need a substantial fuel source, to maintain a large production facility like this one. Virat observed. I know what you're thinking, Virat Bhai. The syndicate has got that covered too. While they have supplied electricity to the premises, they know how vulnerable the facility can be to saboteurs who might try to get their hands on the grid. Sartaj began saying. Petrol? Diesel? The pastor interrupted. Sartaj shook his head. They don't let fuel tankers into the compound. The pastor sighed and shook his head disappointedly. They have a gas pipeline that is mostly underground, drawn direct from the Chattispur refinery, Sartaj said. Why did you say mostly? Virat asked. Here, at the rightmost point, on the front boundary wall, There is a conduit junction, where the pipe briefly surfaces to be able to better link to the facility, Sartaj said, pointing at a black shape on the map. But there is a guard tower close to the wall, overlooking the spot, which houses a sniper waiting to pick off any pests, Birat said with a smile. Sartaj nodded. The pastor made a... sound. What are we going to do, Virat Bhai? said, with a frustrated look on his face. A half assed attack damaging the facade of this esteemed institution is not what we are looking for. We are going to burn this thing to the ground, Vidat said. The pastor nodded in agreement. Can your contact get us the blueprints for the gas pipeline layout within the warehouse as well? Vidat asked. Uh, yes, why? Sartaj asked. I know a man who likes to blow up things. Vidat said. Hmm... They kill the horses? Ledu Vinayak tried to express his incredulity through a mouthful of his favourite delicacy. Vidat nodded and smacked his lips at the same time. Bastards, Vinayak said, rubbing crumbs off his palms. He was seated on a milestone marker on the side of a highway, next to his parked Mercedes-Benz sprinter panel van. Virat had just finished recounting the events of the past month and his initial thoughts on the plan to attack the syndicate's warehouse. Vinayak had gone through an entire packet of ledus during the duration of the tale. The look on his face indicated that he had enough details to proceed to the recommendation phase. He got up, picked and devoured tiny morsels of ledu clinging to his shirt as he approached his van. Did you find anything on Pepe? Vidat asked. Not yet, but I am close. This is not the first time I have been asked to hack the accounts of syndicate members. But to get to the top, I have to dig deeper. It's only been a week since you made the request, boss. Be patient, Vinayak said. He opened the side door to reveal a host of gleaming steel cabinets and electronics, including military-grade scanners and surveillance equipment. He opened a tiny panel and pressed a button. Cabinet walls parted to reveal cases full of gleaming guns, MP5s, FNFLs, G3s, AR-15s, RPG-7s, Uzis, Remingtons, Glocks, all neatly arrayed in rule-inducing rows, underlit by blue LEDs. Nice, Virat said with a smile. Don't be a stranger, Virubai. Come inside, Minayak said. Virat stepped into the van and the door closed behind him automatically. The van which was air-conditioned provided a respite from the hot afternoon sun they had endured moments ago. Can you organize the vehicle? Virat asked as he sank into a comfy leather chair. The automated one? Sure. They conducted a navy trial in Noida a few months ago, and I broke into the garage at night and scanned the automation systems of the self-driving car. Vinayak said with a smile, mightily amused with himself, I don't have time for you to build an automated vehicle for me. We are go-go-go tomorrow evening, Vidat said. Well, Ledu said, and we will have to break into the garage... Of a certain Punjabi real estate baron, a hundred k's from here. But that would mean the rates double. Naturally, Virat said. Vinay guffawed. About the gas supply plumbing, Vinayak said, playing with the Swiss army knife. What about it, Virat said. There are these Chinese probes the size of little goalies used to map pipes in their strategically important installations. They're used to check for surveillance bugs or damage caused by saboteurs. It can propel itself through the pipes and get to where you want it to go, Vinayak said. And you can rig it to explode? Virat inquired. It was Vinayak's turn to say, naturally. All right, let's do some gun shopping, Virat said with a twinkle in his eye. That is the end of His Night Begins Season 3 Part 1.